Thank you, Betty. So we've started our new series now looking at Paul's missionary journeys. And I want to thank you, Barry, for starting the, getting the ball rolling last week as we looked at this series. Now, when we think about Paul's missionary journeys, we might think, oh, these, this, is, this is going to be a story of success after success, don't we? We think of Paul as a great missionary. Carol's shaking her head. Um, because she knows <laughs> that actually, if you read the book of Acts, you see that Paul has unsuccessful ministry after unsuccessful ministry. Um, and given the news of this last week, I reflected a lot on this as well. Um, you see, in our church, we have a committee called the Placements Committee that actually looks at a minister's history, how they've tracked along the way. And, and they're the ones who make these big decisions. Most of the time, anyway. We believe God is in control, but they, they're the ones that kind of tick the boxes and make sure everything's right. And I thought to myself, and I'm sure Barry's going to have a giggle at this, would they allow Paul to be a minister today? <laughs> um, probably not. Because he, he antagonizes people. Uh, he makes them very cranky. And I find it ironic that, of course, there are so many churches named after him nowadays. Churches in which they would probably never accept him and receive him because he was such an unsuccessful minister. But dear friends, the reality is that we don't measure success in the church, or at least we shouldn't. By earthly means, we measure them by heavenly ones. We measure success by what God is doing, the impact he is having through us, within us, and around us, and in the community. And that's why we can look at Paul's missionary journeys and learn from that. So today I'm not going to give you a sermon illustration. I'm going to give you a sermon practicum. The difference being that I don't feel that I need to explain to you what is going on here? Because in so many respects, we are living it and we are breathing it as 21st century ministers and missionaries here where we find ourselves. Whether it is in the Pimpama area, in Jacobs Creek, up in Brisbane where I live, in Logan Home, or wherever you are in school, uni, travel, you have the opportunity to be the vehicle of God's message and more importantly, God's love. And that's what this month is all about. So we're going to explore, and yes, this was a working title, The Many Failures of Paul this month as a way for us to learn from that and how that could speak to us and connect with us. Um, so yeah, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads in prayer as we invite the Holy Spirit to lead us in this time. Thank you, God, for being present with us. Lead us and guide us by your powerful and mighty hand and speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So where do we begin? I have two remotes here, this one. I want to go back to last week, Acts 13. Um, and from Cyprus, they were there and they went on to Sidian Antioch. Now, if you remember in Cyprus, they had that situation with the sorcerer, and they had um, a, a, what we call in mission circles a power encounter. That is a situation where um, we are encountering the power of God versus the power that is present there, either in the culture or in spirituality of the local people. And we have an opportunity to demonstrate 
God's power and God's love. Now, what happened in that situation was that they were able to actually do something that then, and I'm going to go into this later, but it allowed the proconsul to come and speak to them, the local governor. They moved on from there to Pisidian Antioch. Now, the reason why it qualifies it with Pisidian Antioch is to not be confused with Antioch in near Lebanon. So there were two, actually there were many Antiochs, just as there were many Alexandrias back in the day. Um, and so let's not confuse the two. So this one is up in central Turkey. And on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leader of the synagogue went to them, sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and Gentiles who worship the Lord, listen to me. I want to highlight this verse for you because I want to tell you that that's the first place to begin. Are they ready to hear us? We recently had our census results from last year, didn't we? And they said that right now the Uniting Church has gone from number three in this country to number five. And I say, yay! I think that's great. Do you know why? I think that's much more real, (laughs) much more realistic of who we are and where we've been. I think there's been a lot of people who have ticked the census from saying, I'm Uniting Church. And I don't go to church. And I don't get involved in the community. And I don't participate. And I think it's so much better for us to actually know, hang on a minute. This is, this is who we are. This is the number of people that we actually have. I found it interesting that when they compiled all the Pentecostals, it was the same. The same as the United Church. And that tells me something as well. Because we think of a lot of Pentecostal churches as being much, much bigger. And there are. There are a lot of very large Pentecostal churches, but there are also very, very little ones as well, all over the country. And so there's something there to be said about where those two denominations are going. And it tells me that the third figure that I want to highlight for you is, of course, the one of that of people who have no faith. Now, I want to use, I want to use that term because I want to say people who have no faith. That's... As a Latino person, that's, that's a hard thing for me to say. Because as a Latino person, I was brought up in a culture where faith is endemic. It is something that is part of our human nature and character. I'm not saying belonging to a religion is part of our human nature and character. But I'm saying acknowledging that there is something beyond is something that I was brought up with, this idea. And I find that hard to accept, and I, fa- I found that something that I've had to grow up into and learn living in this country. Well, that number is now almost 50-50 with people of faith in our country. Now, once again, does that make me sad? No, because I believe that is a much more realistic depiction of our situation, and it also bolsters my drive to share faith. Do you know why? It's not because I want to see these pews filled every week, although I would be very blessed by that. It's not because I want to see churches, you know, controlling government and managing this. No. It's because my faith is the source of my hope. It is my hope. It is the the thing that has, in many times, taken me from the places of darkness into places of light. It has helped me walk with people 
who have been burdened and hurting and see healing and unburdening happen in their lives. It convicted me to go and learn foreign languages, including this one, which I'm speaking with you now, so that I could then share that love and that connection with Jesus Christ. But above all else, it keeps me humble. And it continues to ask me to check myself first before I look in my brother's or sister's eye for a log. This is the world we live in. A world that is turning their back on that kind of faith. And I think because of that, it's a world that really, really needs me. Really needs it, sorry. Are you with me? I combined those two phrases together and I didn't mean to. <laughs> so when we look at Paul's journey, we see that he went from uh, in Damascus earlier on. You can see I've put it there on the map. And then he makes his way out to Seleucia and then over to Cyprus and then up to Perga, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derba. And I've put in there the city of Tarsus, sorry, Derby, and the city of Tarsus, which is his hometown. I wanted to put in there because I wanted you to know that geographically that area is not much larger than the Great Southeast. Kind of the end of the Gold Coast up to the Gimpy and the extents of the Sunshine Coast and then out towards Toowoomba. It's not a big area. Now you might be thinking, what's the relevance of that? This little area would go on to impact and shape Christianity for millennia to come. <coughs> I want you to think about these synagogues that they visited. Do you think that they were filled with hundreds of people, thousands of people? Do you think that they had up-to-date PowerPoint systems? And I mean, obviously the equivalents of their day. No. In fact, the Romans disallowed any association larger than 30 men. Sorry, ladies, you didn't count. But I suppose that means that there could be much more ladies than 30. But anyway, they couldn't allow more than 30 men. That's right. Man number 31, you have to wait outside because if the Romans come along, they're going to close the door, close the synagogue and kick everyone out onto the street. So we're not talking about huge churches. We're talking about small Gatherings. We're talking about Paul and Barnabas and John and eventually Luke. A couple of guys going around and sharing the love of God. Now, yes, we hear statements like, and the whole city came out to worship the Lord. Didn't you hear that? Wasn't that beautiful? Can you imagine that? Imagine if all of Brisbane came to worship Jesus. Wouldn't that be amazing? But city here doesn't mean a million people. It means maybe a few hundred, if that. Just those who were immediately within the historic center. And only in that moment, not those who would have been traveling elsewhere and had their homes in that space. What I'm trying to get at here, friends, is that success should never be measured in numbers. Whether it is bums on seats or money in the offering, it has to be measured in the welcome, in the fellowship, in the love, and in the impact that we can have with our local community. And dare I say, with one another.
This is a small area, geographically speaking. And yet it had a massive impact on the world. I pride myself on being a traveler. I've seen most of the American continent before I was 16 years old. I loved every minute of it. And I was aghast to learn that Jesus had only ever traveled to Egypt. <laughs> he only had one stamp in his passport. I mean, come on, Jesus. You got to do better than that. As an eight-year-old kid, I was going to, on mission endeavors in Paraguay and Bolivia. Come on. <laughs> like I said before, many of these biblical figures in our modern church today would not be seen as successes. And yet, this is the example. We need to remember that. Because the great, great successes of the Bible are the hearts and minds that are moved towards Jesus. Doesn't the word say that even one soul that turns to God all of the choirs of angels in heaven will sing in worship. That's what I'm talking about, friends. It's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. It's about the caliber. So, let's look at what happened. This is one of the more successful trips they had. There in Acts 13 to 32 to 33, Paul is there saying... To the, in the synagogue, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father. What's he saying here? He's using the language of family. In this church, friends, we are family. And one of the things I've learned about families is that they are often dysfunctional, aren't they? But what's one of the greatest things that keeps families together? Love. It is love beyond the dysfunction. It is love beyond the issues, personal issues and questions. It is love and forgiveness and grace beyond that identity. <coughs> And certainly I've experienced in some contexts where families have broken up. It is because that love is not enough to get beyond those issues and concerns. This is part of what's happening here, friends. Paul is going to the gentilized Greek-speaking Jews. And he's saying to them, you are being treated as second-class step brothers and sisters. But that is no more. Because you don't have to be a perfect Jewish person to be considered a child of Abraham. Therefore, you don't have to be a Jewish person to be considered a child of God. Now, this was a revolutionary idea that he was saying to them. Because these people, they were together with other Gentiles. People who their religion was saying are unclean, impure. You must keep at an arm's length. But Paul was saying no. He goes on, verse 38. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses, under the religion, old religion of the Jews. He's taking a universal brush. And he's saying, you see this? With this brush... One stroke, 
declares you all equal. But the second one declares you all free. The first stroke puts us all in the same bucket. We all need to repent. But the second stroke says, if we do, it doesn't matter how good or how bad you are. It doesn't matter whether you've grown up with the Bible or not. It doesn't matter whether you have stood in in spaces of holiness and sung choirs with angelic voices or whether you've always lived your life away from the church. What matters is that you can come and be considered a daughter, a son of the living God. Later on, after he's gone through the biblical narrative from Moses to Jesus, he says to them, this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they too were glad and honored in the word of the Lord. For all who were appointed for eternal life believed. I want to share with you, the last time I was in my home country in Argentina, I had the privilege of doing a baptism service. Now, I, I had not been told what baptism services were like in Argentina. They brought out a big pool into the middle of the church. There were five people who were going to be baptized. There were three preachers. I was one of them. Uh, I was baptizing two of them. And the church, which would have been slightly smaller than this in width, had about 300 people pouring out onto the street. They blocked off the, the avenue so that cars wouldn't come in and disrupt the service. Do you think they got council approval to do that? Nope. <laughs> so the police came. And when the police came, the ladies of the church came along and they gave them empanadas and fruta crujiente. <laughs> the police sat down and had some food and just went with it. Clearly that they hadn't had Fitzgerald um, <laughs> at that time. And I'm there and I'm preaching. And I'm seeing these, these two people. One is a young lady. She was um, my cousin's girlfriend. And another one is a, was a 90-year-old man. And it was all about kind of having this celebration of this moment in their lives where they'd made a commitment to what God was doing. For one, the end of a journey. For another, the beginning. She would go on to do missionary training and become a pastor herself. The elderly gentleman, I can imagine, went on to go to glory not long after that. And and the approach to the baptism was so vastly different. With the young girl, you know, she came over and she was crying and she was emotional and everybody was singing her favorite hymn. And then we dunked her once, twice, three times. And she comes out and she gasps for air and then she stands there and she's just muttering softly and quietly under her breath. And and everybody just stood there, all 300, 400, however many people there were by this stage. There were people on the street. There were people sitting in the pews. Forget fire safety, my goodness. There were people everywhere. And and everybody just kind of stood there waiting for her. There was a moment where where all of that community was just focused on that one young woman. And how her journey had accumulated 
to this point and what it meant for her and everyone around her. Whereas for the older gentleman who I baptized immediately after, I was very careful. <laughs> One, are you okay, sir? Yes, okay, I'm going to dunk you again. Here we go. Two, and are, you, are you ready to go? Oh, no, 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 that's okay. I'll just sprinkle the water. Here we go, here we go. All right, and I baptized you in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was that. And then, and then the, the congregation began to sing, and he sang with them. And then the second the song was over, get out, get in the car and go home. You know, so it was, it was the end of his journey, of, of, of his journey of faith and where he had come from and where he needed to go. I tell you this story because I want to tell you that church is not the same everywhere you go. When I ministered among Pacific Islanders in Logan Central and Barry will attest to this, every single one of the services was vastly different and they were beautiful in their own way. When I ministered um, up in Brisbane last year versus how I minister now, it is different, it is unique, it is beautiful. This is something about this community that is exciting. Every church is unique. Every church has wonderful qualities. I believe what Paul said here is being fulfilled. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Because, dear friends, where I was born, you know what we consider to be the ends of the earth? Here. <laughs> it's true. It's 12 hours. Okay? If I want to call my cousin, I need to call him at 8 o'clock in the morning because it's 8 o'clock at night. It's the end. The ends of the earth. We are here. We are preaching that gospel. They are there. They are preaching that gospel. And my prayer is that we'll continue to preach that gospel in the love and presence of the Holy Spirit as he leads us and guides us. This universal brush that Paul brings out is very important for us to understand. Now in Acts 14, part of today's reading, he says, Friends, why are you doing this? They, they healed a man and they started worshipping them like gods. He says, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news. Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. This is the part I want us to focus on, guys. Listen. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. These verses are what caused the church to start to realize that the God that created this world loves each and every one of his children. If not, he would not provide. If we believe in a God who loves us, we must therefore believe in a God who loves the other. Who loves the one that is next to us. Who loves our neighbor. Who loves our enemy. Dare I say. I think I've shared this story with you before. One of the um, starkest moments in my journey of faith was listening to a, a Christian Spanish rapper. We call it reggaeton. You may have heard of that music. Um, and I was, I was listening to lots of different Christian music because I, I wanted to get a picture of what was happening in the world of worship. And he says, Jesus died for me. Jesus died for my enemy. Okay, yeah. We can all accept that, no? 
He says, Jesus died for Osama bin Laden. Jesus died for Adolf Hitler. And I was really like, that's hard. That's hard to hear, isn't it? But it's true. Because if Jesus died for me, then he died for my enemy also. If Jesus died for the one who loves, and even though he loves in a way that may be impure and impractical, he died for the one who hates. And Jesus' love is so perfect, so wonderful, so outreaching, so ongoing, that I cannot say that that love is only sufficient for me and then stops at the next person. Paul is saying something similar here. God had not left himself without testimony. To a people who did not know him, he showed kindness by bringing the rain and the crops and to continue to provide with food and filling our hearts with joy. I believe Paul was speaking here in the Lyconian language. But in Hebrew, in the language of Jesus Christ, the word for joy sounds a little bit like this. Can you see what I'm doing? Thank you, Sam. I did a lot of that, actually, with your concern. Young Sammy was born 10 pounds, 6 ounces. It's the sound of a father picking up a child. Joy is that moment of relief when that child comes in and you're no longer straining. That is what God feels when we reach for Him, when we come to Him when we are embraced in him. In brief, we see that in Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas and John, in this case, preached the gospel in the synagogues. They encountered the sorcerer. The governor, the proconsul, believed. Not because of the power encounter, but because he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. The teaching that he could also be counted among the children of God. In Syrian Antioch, they preached the gospel in synagogues, told the biblical narrative from Moses to Christ. The Gentiles believed in Paul's words, since the Jews reject it and do not consider themselves worthy of eternal life, they turned to those that they had deemed unworthy to receive the message in the first place. Then in Lystra, they healed a man born disabled, were mistaken for Zeus and Hermes, convinced the crowd of the universal God. And the word says that then some of those Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who had been preaching a message against them, won the crowd over and they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. Two successes, one failure. One instance in which Paul paid with his own flesh. But yet, what we see here is a narrative of authentic love. He wanted these people to no longer be hated, pushed away, and shamed. And why? Because Paul had been an oppressor to these people. 
Because in earlier chapters of Acts, you read about this very same man who is preaching and who is being stoned and who is talking with conviction about God being the one who is grabbing these believers and throwing them in jail, being the very one who is standing by while others stone them, being the one who in fact committed the murders himself. I think in Damascus, Paul would have been struck with the reality of God's love and immediately felt about two inches tall because he would have realized that he was not orchestrating the love of God that he had been brought up to to understand that instead he had been expressing hate vilification and that he had been instead doing the work of the devil so he does a 180 and he decides to go to these places and meet these people and begin to bring them salvation so that others like him will not come and do this. Later, some 60 years later, I think, in Corinthians, we read, For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom will not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We need to remember that sometimes we are going to be seen as foolish for loving in this way. For being counted upon that 50% of Australians who are of faith. I want to encourage you today to say, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with sometimes being painted as being foolish. So long as I'm foolish for Christ. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time we've shared together and we commit it to you. We ask you, Lord God, go before us in the sharing of your love with those around us. And help us, Lord God, to continue to share your presence. Let us know, Father God, those moments in our own lives where we need it. And speak to us so that we may hear your voice. Thank you for this moment, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.